Welcome to episode 50, The Truth About Party Over Principles. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topics such as lack of principles in politics, wisdom, the Roe v. Wade opinion, or the Federalist Papers come up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. The YouTube channel has recently been updated to include topic-specific playlists ranging from abortion, the Constitution, economics, and Christian apologetics. Make sure to check that out. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Three things prompted the publishing of this episode. Number one, as I publish more and more of these TruthQuest episodes, I'm constantly struck by the commonalities I observe as I move from topic to topic, specifically when it comes to the behavior of leftists in general and the National Democrats specifically. Number two, I just finished Michael Malice's book, The New Right. His perspective on the political landscape was another important piece to the puzzle. And finally, I listened to a podcast episode by Christian apologetic Frank Turek over at crossexamine.org where he discussed the new absolutes in society. So basically, you mix it all together, and you come out with a new TruthQuest episode examining the idea of party over principles. I realized that with a lack of principles to point to as a guiding force in policy prescriptions, the only thing left to point to is the win. Winning is everything. It doesn't matter who gets hurt. Oftentimes, it's the very people you claim that you want to help. It's all about the win. You must win rhetorically, even if that means the only bullet in your holster is name-calling, denigration, and vilification of your political opponents. You must win even if that means shutting down the speech of people with whom you disagree. You must win even if that means setting forth intellectually lazy and dishonest arguments. You must win even if your current policy positions contradict your position from just a few short years ago. You must win even if your policies and rhetoric change the language and tear down long-held societal norms and customs. It's all about the win, not principles, because there aren't any. So come to think of it, maybe it is their principle, rather than looking towards God or morality, the Constitution, or the consequences of their actions as guiding principles. All they care about is the win. Here are a few examples. Bush lied, people died. It's a favorite refrain from the left, even to this day. This implies that lying is bad, right? I mean, how else can you interpret that? Okay, so let's take them at their word. Lying is bad. What do these same people say about Bill Clinton's lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky? Or what about Hillary's lies about this illegal email server? Or the lies told by Jim Comey, John Brennan, and the rest of the Russia collusion FBI-CIA cabal? In all of those high-profile cases, these same people either made excuses for the behavior, defended it, or ignored it. What about Obama's daily lies about the Obamacare law? You get to keep your doctor, you're going to save $2,500 a year. Hmm. The media, the Democrats, and the left in general were strangely silent. What about the whole global warming agenda? It's been exposed as a lie. It started out as global cooling in the 70s, it shifted to global warming, then to climate change, and now they seem to be hanging on to extreme weather. All along, their theory was based on models using manipulated data worked by people who wanted to continue receiving government grants to study the so-called problem. 
all done in order to gain more and more regulatory control over the United States economy. But at what cost? So we are left with only to conclude that lying is not a principle to which the left and the National Democrats subscribe to. By the way, you can listen to episode 7 for a deep dive into climate change. What about stuff like animal cruelty? There's lots of left-leaning folks who support animal rights causes. Okay, that's no problem. They rail against animal cruelty when it comes to slaughtering them for food. Okay, that's fine. So let's take them at their word that cruelty is bad. What do these same people say about the cruel act of killing a baby during a partial birth abortion procedure where the baby is delivered feet first, scissors are inserted into the skull in order to open a hole whereby the brain matter can be sucked out, collapsing the brain so the body can be easily removed? Strangely, when you make such a point, you are greeted with crickets. So, we are left only to conclude that cruelty is not a principle to which the left subscribes. Listen to episode number 33 for a deep dive into the mental gymnastics performed by pro-abortion advocates. What about taxes? On the one hand, it appears that our friends on the left subscribe to the principle that whatever you tax, you get less of. Consider their support of tax increases on products such as cigarettes, alcohol, gasoline, and soda. But on the other hand, they constantly advocate for income tax increases and protest against income tax cuts. So if tax increases stifle the tax product, the service, or activity, what do they think will happen when income taxes are raised? Additionally, the left positions themselves as the party of the little guy, the poor, the downtrodden. They protect all those folks from the nasty Republicans. Yet who bears the lion's share of the burden of tax increases? Lower income folks are always the hardest hit by higher taxes because it takes a larger percentage of their income to pay those taxes. Think about taxes on cigarettes. Is a $3 pack tax going to hit the blue collar guy harder than the white collar guy? The leftists are literally screwing their own, their own so-called constituents, all in the name of what? In the same vein as the government imposed minimum wage laws. Who do they benefit? You might be able to argue that the very few who are already making close to the new wage rate, but that's about it. On the other hand, the list of who is, it harms is extensive. Everyone who makes less than the new mandated minimum wage, their hours get cut, payrolls get cut, low-skilled and no-skilled workers lose their jobs, and businesses close. So you go from having a low-wage job to no job. So what principle drives the left to push for raising minimum wage? It ain't the Constitution because federal power to dictate wage rates ain't in there. It ain't benefiting those who they're pandering to either. So again, you are stuck with a head-exploding task of trying to figure it out. Listen to episode 4 for more on the minimum wage. So what are we to conclude by these inconsistencies, this level of intellectual dishonesty? If lying and cruelty are bad, then you should oppose it at all the time. If you know taxes stifle the sale of or the level of activity of a particular product or service, then you should acknowledge what the impact of an income tax will do to the gainfully employed. If you know that government price controls, such as setting a minimum wage, will detrimentally impact the very people who you claim you want to help, you should always oppose that policy. Is it really that difficult to be principle-driven? Part of the leftist playbook is name-calling. It comes from Sal Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. The book outlines 12 rules to get your way in the political arena. I'll cover a few of them here. For example, rule number five, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. Because there's no defense for it. It's irrational. It's infuriating. It also works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. Rule number eight states, keep the pressure on, never let up. 
So you'll see this where they're always trying new things to try to keep their political opponents off balance. Rule number nine is the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. So basically the idea here is the imagination and ego can dream up many more consequences than any activist. So that's where strawman arguments are perfectly deployed for this strategy. You know, you hear him say, there are people who say, or some people oppose this policy, or we must do something or else. And then rule number 12 is pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. So what the left does is essentially hold a deck of cards in their back pocket with various expletives on them. When appropriate, they pull out the various card. You're familiar with them. Bigot, homophobe, sexist, xenophobe, transphobe, misogynist, denier, racist. They've been doing this for decades. At this point, if you have not been labeled one or more of these things by leftists, you're doing something wrong. You're not in the fight. As discussed in my book, Critical Thinking, the name-calling can be general or specific. The general version manifests itself in the assumption that if you oppose any government action, then you are opposed to its intended outcome. So, for example, think about uh, more money for education. If you are opposed to throwing more good money after bad, you are opposed to educating the children, and you're a teacher hater. Or what about Medicare and Medicaid spending? If you're opposed to these wasteful, fraud-ridden programs, you oppose health care for the poor and elderly. And what about privatizing Social Security or allowing younger folks to opt out? Oh, you hate old people, and you're no different than Paul Ryan, who was depicted as pushing a wheelchair-bound grandma off a cliff during the Bush administration when this thing came up. The specific type of name-calling is when they get to pull out their name-calling cards from their back pocket. Here are a few of my favorites. If you don't believe in man-made global warming, climate change, hysteria, you are called stupid, ridiculous, a denier, or a dissenter. Ooh. You're opposed to gay marriage? You're a homophobe. Opposed to affirmative action? A bigot and a racist. Opposed to Obamacare? Evil monger. Or you want to deny people health care? Opposed to amnesty for illegal immigrants? You're a xenophobe. Believe in the Second Amendment? You're a cold-blooded killer. Opposed to the going to war? You're an isolationist. An advocate for going to war? You're a warmonger. Don't believe in income inequality is the biggest challenge facing the nation? You're an insensitive, hateful, rich elitist. You're pro-life, you're anti-women, and you're waging a war on women. Opposed to raising the debt ceiling, you hate cops and firefighters. Opposed to raising the minimum wage, heartless. An advocate for welfare reform, callous and cruel. Why do leftists say these things? Because their only principle is winning at all costs. Which ideology consistently calls for the censorship and deplatforming of people with whom they disagree? Who forced out Brandon Icke, the former CEO of Mozilla, because he donated $1,000 to California's Proposition 8 back in 2008? See, that was the proposition that actually passed, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman. It was subsequently struck down by a liberal judge, but it passed, which means more people voted for it than against it. Yet the tolerant left ousted a sitting CEO because he held the majority opinion? How does that work? Who organized a boycott of Chick-fil-A because its CEO publicly stated that marriage is between a man and a woman? Again, the tolerant left strikes again. Who has harassed and sued a Christian baker in Oregon half a dozen times, forcing him to close his business because he refused to bake a friggin' cake? 
for a gay couple. I mean, really. These people are nothing but a bunch of intolerant provocateurs. If it wasn't for the compliant co-conspirator media, these folks would be non-factors in American politics. What principles drive this behavior? Winning, I suppose. But winning what? What are they winning? A culture war? So while the left devotes an entire industry to destroy those who disagree with them, there is no equivalent propensity on the other side of the ideological spectrum. I've never heard any prominent conservative or libertarian commentators like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, uh, Larry Elders, Mark Levin, Tucker Carlson, Ron Paul, Lou Rockwell, Tom Woods, or Glenn Beck. I've never heard any of these folks call for the censorship of their ideological foes. As a matter of fact, most of these folks relish in and encourage the continued banter from their so-called rivals. They wouldn't consider calling for their censorship or deplatforming. Why is that? There are a couple principle-driven reasons for that. Number one, dialogue's healthy. See, most conservatives and libertarians consider themselves in the arena of ideas. It's why I named this podcast The Truth Quest, because I wanted to know what the truth is. Not what the left or right says the truth is, but the truth. I want to debate and persuade because I believe my ideas and policies are what's best for everyone. And let's be honest, when leftists go off the deep end and start spewing nonsense about socialism, free healthcare and free college, partial birth abortion and minimum wage, it gives folks like me and those I just mentioned a plethora of teachable moments. And number two, another principle that these folks use is the constitutionality. In the United States, the First Amendment protects speech. The majority of conservatives want to conserve what is good and just in society, thus the name. They believe, as I do, that the United States Constitution is the greatest political document ever written, and if you want to change it, offer up an amendment, but don't run around boycotting, shutting down speech, and have an activist judge legislate from the bench. And a third principle is conservatives and libertarians do not believe we have the right to go through life unoffended. If you don't like what Steven Crowder produces or the message that Jordan Peterson presents, don't subscribe to their YouTube channels. If you think Breitbart is fake news, get your news from CNN or MSNBC or the Huffington Post or the Young Turks. They are surely not going to disappoint you. Another demented strategy of the left is constantly threatening the advertisers of conservative outlets. They organize boycotts and online harassment campaigns. This is the whole reason Media Matters exists. Look at the advertisers of the number one news network in the world, Fox News, for evidence of this form of harassment. So why do we see this type of behavior from leftists? Because their only principle is winning at all costs. So what does this incessant name-calling devolve into? Well, naturally, it devolves into violence. Which ideologies members have demonstrated a willingness to participate in violence in the United States over, say, the last decade or so? I'm going to answer that question with a series of questions. Who shot up the congressional softball practice? Who composed the Occupy Wall Street crowd? Who composed the Antifa movement? Who gets in the face of senators and press secretaries in restaurants? Who punches MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporters standing in line to go to one of his rallies? Which ideological bend are the likes of Kathy Griffin, Madonna, Robert De Niro, and Johnny Depp from? all of whom have, shall we say, strongly suggested violence against Trump. What do you expect to happen when you have long-standing, high-powered national Democrats spending two years spewing nothing but hate for the current resident of the White House? Think about Maxine Waters and Adam Schiff, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. 
What do you expect to happen when long-standing high-powered media outlets spend two years spewing nothing but hate and a bunch of fake news for the current resident in the White House? Think CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, The View, The Washington Post, Colbert, Kimmel. At least when mainstream conservative-leaning politicians and media outlets opposed Obama, they opposed his agenda, his policies, his lies, and his contradictions. They did not assassinate his character or whip up their constituents to the point of violence. Why was that? Well, because of two principles, morality and respect for the office of the presidency. It is immoral to impugn someone's character even if you find their behavior and or their policies repugnant. Honestly, it's immature. In addition to the immorality of character assassination, the conservative side of the political spectrum tends to hold a certain level of reverence for the office of the presidency that I do not particularly hold, but it's a principle that drives their behavior and calls for them to resist attacking the current resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Look no further than the McCain and Romney campaigns against Obama as a representative sample. So what principles drive the left's propensity for character assassination? Well, perhaps it's Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, or perhaps it's their ever-present principle of winning at all costs, even if it means skirting the rules of common decency and morality, even if they display a level of immaturity rarely seen outside a gaggle of middle school girls. Because there are no principles other than winning at all costs, contradictions and flip-flopping on major issues simply do not matter. Remember John Kerry? I was for it before I was against it, speaking about the Iraq War. What about gay marriage? Hillary and Obama were anti-gay marriage before they searched deep in their souls and determined that marriage could indeed mean two men, two women, or two or three or whatever the leftist dreams up next. What about illegal immigration? Have you seen the YouTube videos of Bill Clinton, Obama, and many current Democratic members of Congress speaking about illegal immigration? In many cases, their views and words mimic President Trump's current rhetoric on the subject. It's almost word for word. In a world where principles are subordinate to party and getting the win at all costs, leftists can afford to bob and weave their way through the public policy landscape without the fear of reaping any reputational damage. If you are a national Democrat or a leftist of any stripe, you can say things that contradict what you said previously with no ramifications because the mainstream media is a compliant co-conspirator in your win-at-all-costs principle. One of the most effective methods the left has employed to influence culture and politics is via the changing of the language and, and employing moral relativism and creating new absolutes. So think about it. An old absolute was purity and waiting to have sex until after marriage. The new absolute is promiscuity. The old absolute was love. The new absolute is tolerance. You must tolerate everyone's activity or you will suffer the heckler's veto. Think back to our previous discussion about name-calling. The old absolute was humility. The new absolute is pride. I mean, we think about it, is pride a good thing? I mean, being proud of yours or someone else's accomplishments is fine. But if by pride you mean your opinion or your way of doing things, which goes against natural law or God's commandments, then you're really in trouble. Regular listeners know that I published a book, The Proverbs Project, a few years ago. As a matter of fact, the two preceding episodes, number 48 and 49, are pulled from that book. And one of the most often discussed topics in the book of Proverbs, besides wisdom, is cautioning us about the dangers of pride. All right, so back to the old and new absolutes. The old absolute was frugality and saving for a rainy day. The new absolute is instant gratification and debt. The old absolute was kindness. 
The new absolute is envy, greed, jealousy, resentment, and malice towards others. You know, class warfare, the 1%, you didn't build that, the gender pay gap, calls for slavery reparations, and all the name-calling we have already discussed. The old absolute was truth. The new absolute is power. As Frank Turek put it, quote, instead of standing on principles, these people try and stand by using power because if you don't have principles, all you have is power. All you can do is impose your will on other people rather than to appealing to principles. It's either principles or power. Then, of course, you have the heckler's veto that plays in here, and you have intolerance and deplatforming and censorship. The old absolute was religious freedom. The new absolute is freedom from religion. I mean, they, they're chasing it away from the public square as fast as possible. The old absolute was life. The new absolute is abortion on demand at taxpayer expense, regardless of point in pregnancy. Think about the language. Illegal immigrants are now undocumented aliens, because you can't say the word illegal. Abortion is choice or reproductive rights. Socialism becomes democratic socialism as a way to divert attention away from socialism's 100% failure rate. Listen to episodes 31 and 32 for a deep dive into socialism. The previous mentioned transformation of global cooling to extreme weather is another one. And again, as I mentioned previously, the definition of marriage has been changed. They couldn't settle for civil unions or contractual agreements between same-sex couples. Nope. They had to force their minority opinion down the throats of all of us old-fashioned homophobic Americans. They had to change the language. So why do they mock? I mean, after all, these are the people who represent themselves as the most tolerant among us. They mock any and everything that is outside of their leftist groupthink bubble. They mock Vice President Pence because he does not go out alone in public with women other than his wife. Well, why? Think of it as a banana split. Start with the banana. The fact that he's the current vice president, a Republican vice president, that's worthy of mocking as often as possible. Throw on top a couple scoops of vanilla ice cream because he's a white guy. Pour on hot fudge and whipped cream because he was the governor of a state that passed a law defining marriage as between a man and a woman. Oh, and the cherry on top is the fact that he's a devout Christian. Holy shit, if there was ever a description of someone worthy of disdain by the left, it's Vice President Pence. They mock homeschooling. Well, why? Because these people rightly do not trust their children to government-run schools, which is the opposite of leftists who believe the government is the answer to everything. They mock people who believe waiting until marriage before having sex. They mock people who go to church. Why? Because these people see God, not government, as the final arbiter. They mock traditional family structure, monogamous married husbands and wives raising a family. Why? Because it does not comport with their men are monsters, more children means more consumption of Mother Earth's resources. They mock rural Americans generally, and specifically Southerners. Why? Because these folks tend to be homeschooling churchgoers living in a traditional family structure who just so happen to be anti-big government. So why do they change the language and mock those who don't think like them? It's not necessarily about winning here, although it is a byproduct of their winning-at-all-cost mentality. They change the language and mock because they know these people are not convinced by their radical agenda. They're not buying what the left is selling, and since they cannot win the argument on its merits, they resort to yet again the gaggle of middle school girls. It's like a defense mechanism to make them feel better about themselves. These people are ignoring me. Well, I'll show them. It's really pathetic. Think about the consequences of some of the policy prescriptions of the left. They call for unconstitutional gun control regulations. 
Well, how is that helpful to their constituents? It violates natural rights of self-defense and leaves them vulnerable to the criminal element. They're advocates for gun-free zones, which end up being shooting galleries for deranged lunatics. What about welfare? They cloak this in a message of compassion, but what are the consequences? Leftists knowingly sentence multiple generations of their constituents to a life of dependency on government, all in the name of winning at all costs? What about their push for abortion? I've spoken at length on this issue. I think I have four episodes on abortion. But one thing I've not touched on yet is the emotional impact on women who have abortions. They are told it's a choice, and they have a right to their body, so what is, the, what is a minor medical procedure going to hurt? But there are real, lifelong mental and physical post-abortion effects that stay with the women, and the father for that matter, that are rarely discussed. But for the leftist perspective, it's just another wedge issue, used to divide and conquer the electorate. Well, what about the ineffective environmental regulation? You know, the whole climate change agenda, Paris Accords, Kyoto Protocol, carbon credit schemes. Here's a topic ripped from today's headlines, sanctuary cities and open borders. Leftists know their agenda is not popular with most of America, so what to do? Import new voters, of course, or at least flood the zone for the next census so that blue states can improve their representation in Congress. Why do you think they oppose the citizenship question on the census? Blue states are dying from an exodus of their sane citizens. They are escaping high taxes and ridiculous regulatory environments. So what is the leftist to do in order to maintain their congressional representation? Import new residents, just in time for the 2020 census. Who cares what the consequences of this policy might be? It's all about winning. Winning at all costs. What about single-payer socialized medicine? By any measure, this is a losing proposition. There are no success stories to point to unless your agenda is more and more government control over the populace. Innovation suffers, waiting times increase, accountability goes out the window, bureaucrats make healthcare decisions. It's outrageous. So why do leftists advocate for it? Again, it's winning at all costs. They know they can win votes by promising the electorate something that seems free. Thus the cries for Medicare for all and ignoring the object failure of Obamacare. So why do they advocate for these policies if they are actually damaging the country and their constituents? What principle drives these positions? Some of them is about winning, but some of it's illogical and admittedly difficult to decipher, which is why I often speculate on social media that liberalism is a mental disorder. But maybe it's the principle of big government. So without a constitution-driven principle, these leftists advocate for the elimination of electoral college. Without a sovereign nation-driven principle, these leftists oppose census questions asking about citizenship, and they advocate for amnesty for illegal immigrants. I mean, I'm sorry, undocumented immigrants. We've already discussed the former, but why push for amnesty? Well, so they can load them up on government welfare benefits, now including Social Security and driver's licenses. Then you want to give them voting rights and plug them into the perceived aggrieved matrix. I'll explain this in a second. But most importantly, they can tell them how Republicans are going to take away everything from them. Why do something so damaging to the country? What principle is driving this position? Winning, of course. This list goes on and on, from advocating for lower voting age to endorsing judicial activism and socialism. All of it's outside the mainstream, yet here we are. Since their agenda offers Americans nothing of value, they are left with dividing the electorate into these perceived aggrieved groups. You know it. 
homosexuals, women, the poor, the middle class, transgenders, LBGT community, college students, African Americans, illegal immigrants. They just need to identify the group, explain to them how America is exploiting them, then they promise each of these perceived aggrieved groups something and tell them that those nasty Republicans are going to take it away. Their right to marriage, equal pay for equal work, welfare, a living wage, work visas, your student loans, your green card, it goes on and on. As they cobble together a coalition of these perceived aggrieved groups, they spend the rest of their time denigrating their political opponents and refusing to bait on the merits of the policies. So I can hear some of you out there thinking, okay, this is great. You've been, you're bashing liberals and leftists and national democrats for the last 25 minutes. Most of your points are valid. I tend to agree that they are clearly not principle-driven, but for crying out loud, what principles do you live by? What principles would you suggest that these politicians and policy wonks live by? Huh, I'm glad you asked. There's four of them. One is God or, and or morality. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew to live by biblical principles. They are sound, fair, and rational. So instead of name-calling people who are simply pointing out natural laws or God's laws, you should be yelling at God. These people did not make up these principles. They are simply conveying God's laws to you, and hopefully they're doing it in a loving manner. See, murder is wrong. That's the pro-life position. See, the only way for the human race to continue is for men and women to procreate. That's natural law, thus the aversion to, to calls for redefining marriage. Proclaiming that those who suffer from a dysphoria should be encouraged is cruel and immoral, thus the pushback on some transgender practices. It's unfortunate that the left has been so successful at eliminating morality and God from the public domain. Number two is the Constitution. In the world of politics and public policy in the United States, the Bible is the Constitution. However, the Constitution heavily restricts the power of the general or federal government, which cuts leftist liberals and national democrats right off at the knees, since often big government is their god, their little g god, which explains their resistance to this principle. Number three is to consider the consequences of your policies. Again, let's consider the consequences of some of the policies we have discussed today. Minimum wage, welfare, abortion, Obamacare, amnesty, socialized medicine. All of them have obvious negative consequences, but despite this fact, leftists, liberals, and national democrats support them all. What principles drive these decisions? Winning at all costs, even if it means screwing over the very people you, who voted for you. After all, what alternatives do these people have? Vote Republican? Hell no, the Republican brand is tarred and feathered on a daily basis. In the end, leftists know their voters are not going anywhere, which is why they can use and abuse them year after year, decade after decade. The fourth principle that I would love to see being used is free market capitalism. And I'm not saying free market capitalism is the best economic model. I'm just saying it's the best that mankind has ever devised. It is responsible for productivity gains, innovation, and increasing the standard of living of literally millions, maybe even billions of people. If you teleported someone from 100 to 200 years ago to modern-day America, and they spent one day in any first-world country, their heads would explode as they witnessed everyday life. The same cannot be said for someone teleporting into a socialistic or fascistic country like Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, many African nations, etc. Capitalism is responsible for so much good. Can you imagine a political arena where the majority of participants held principles ahead of winning? How much better off would we be as a country if most of the players considered God and morality, the Constitution, the consequences of their policies, and viewed capitalism as an intrinsic good? Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. 